All right, it's the third service. I say this because I have been battling a nasty cold for nine days. So you may need to bear with me at a couple of points. Now, actually, my cold has been a source of conflict in our marriage because I happen to be married to a physician. And so, I don't know, maybe day five or day six, Rhonda would say it was probably the first day, I came to Rhonda very gently and lovingly said, what in the world can you give me to get rid of this? You know, what medicine? And Rhonda, well, you know, Rob, this is kind of the natural cycle of colds, and sometimes colds can last for 20 years, and you just got to deal with it. <laughs> and so, you know, then the next day I would come to Rhonda, and hey, Rhonda, um, you know, hey, you know, my ears are clogged, I can't, um, what can you give me? You know, Rob, it's just like I said. And then finally, you know, Rhonda said to me, what kind of physician am I, Rob? And I said, well, you're a pediatrician. And she said, well, stop acting like my most immature patient. <laughs> now, it didn't quite fold, unfold like that, but you get the idea. Actually, um, while I'm on the subject, this is a huge week for our family. We're really excited because Ryan, the youngest of our seven children, is graduating on Thursday from college. From Clemson, yeah, thank you, Lord. From Clemson University, and it gets better. Then in June, he starts his Atlanta-based job. Now, do you know what this means spiritually? It means no more college tuition. <laughs> Actually, there's sort of a little picture of grace here because well, that's been going on. Ryan goes to college for free, but it costs his dad dearly and Rhonda. Little picture there. We are leaving on a Wednesday night, and we can't wait to get down there. Ryan and his roommates and all the families, there's going to be celebrations on Thursday after graduation, Friday, and on and on. And I, I want to tell you, it's going to be a time of joy, and it's going to be a time of worship. As a matter of fact, earlier this week, it was on Wednesday, Ryan texted me, three words. Typical male, right? And the words were, done with college. And I want to share with you what I texted back to him. I said, alas, my youngest is now an adult officially. But maybe that happened when you turned 21. Alas, he will be moving away and never coming back. But he is right in the center of God's will and God has huge things in store for him. So my despair is trumped by joy in his future, his walk with Christ, and the hope that Miss Taylor, Taylor's his girlfriend, will keep him from a multitude of misfortunes, especially while he drives. He's a lame driver. And then I concluded by saying, you rock, kid, and I couldn't be more proud of you. See you in seven days. And Ryan texted back and said, Dad, that's the best text I've ever received. I love my son. We love all seven of our kids. Now, do you see where I'm going with this as we conclude the parable of the prodigal son? 
A parent's love for a child. In the story of the parable, the father's love for his two sons is a picture of God's infinitely greater love for us in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the love of a parent is a divinely given metaphor for the infinitely greater love of God. And so today, as we come to the end of this three-week series, what I want to do is I want to look at the love of this father in the parable and explore what it says about the beauty and the breadth of God's love for his children. But before I jump in, let me ask the question, why? Why does understanding God's love matter? Why is it a big deal? Well, let me put it this way. The most important thing you can do for yourself, for your family, for your co-workers, the most important thing you can do is wake up each and every morning and remind yourself that the one who controls every event in history The one who is sovereign over every location and every person is your heavenly father in Christ. Your heavenly father always thinks about you. He never ever forgets about you. And he always acts towards you with welcoming, patient, protecting, nourishing, and forgiving love. The perfect love of a perfect father. Your heavenly father is always with you. He's never behind you. He's not too far out in front of you. He has your back and his heart is always, always for you. Such is the love of God. God will help you in the darkness. He lifts your burdens. He lightens your load. So why does it matter that we as followers of Jesus Christ relish, I mean relish, in the love of God? Because if we get it, if we drive it into the inner recesses of our lives, it changes everything. It changes who you are as a husband, who you are as a wife, who you are in the marketplace. The love of God changes it all. So let's explore it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up in verse 17. We've been reading this parable, and so here I'm sort of jumping into the, still the front end, but I'm skipping over a couple of paragraphs. And let's start in verse 17. When he, now who is the he? The he is the prodigal son. Came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now this is the love of the father towards the prodigal. Now let's pick it up in verse 28 and look at the love of the father toward the elder brother. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the prodigal and we talked about the secularism of the prodigal. Last week, Lon looked at the elder brother, looked at the moralism of the older brother. And today, what we want to do is conclude by looking at the third main character here, and that is the father and his love. Now, if you go back to the first two verses that open Luke chapter 15, we have this context. And if you read those two verses in light of this parable, what we discover is that the prodigal represents the tax collectors and sinners that are listening to Jesus. The elder brother represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so the Father represents God and God's love and the gospel. And so what I want to wrestle with is what do we learn about God's love here? What does God's love look like? And I want to suggest there's four aspects to God's love that we don't want to miss. And the first is it's an initiating love. And by that I mean it's a one-way love. It's initiating one-way love. Now we see this in this parable when the father runs to the prodigal. And then later when he leaves the party to coax, to, the word is actually plead, to plead with the older brother to come in to the festivities and to celebrate. Now in both of those, the action on the part of the summer the father is the same. He initiates. He runs to the prodigal. He goes out to the elder brother. Now here we come to a key to life. A key to your marriage, your dating relationship. A key for you and how you handle all relationships. A key for you in the marketplace as we see this initiating one-way love. And why do I say that? Because so much of our love is conditional today. And I get a part of that. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to be rejected. So we kind of lay back. 
And we've adopted this notion that's rampant in our culture today that I will love you if. If you meet my demands, if you meet my needs. But isn't this, I will love you if, why so many marriages are on fumes? And isn't it really a large part of the reason that so many couples today, even Christian couples, live together before they get married? They want to check it out. They want to see if it fits. Uh, What they're not saying, but what they really mean is, I want to see if you meet my needs, my expectations, my demands. Living together was never a part of God's plan. Why? Because it doesn't reflect God's love. His initiating one way, I'm going to love you regardless, love. And so living together today is what? Convenience without commitment? And it's the opposite of what we see here in the Father's one way initiating unmerited, totally permanent love. (coughs) Excuse me. Now let's take the prodigal, and then we'll go to the older son. What I want you to understand is when we come to the front end of this story, it appears that the prodigal, or the father, I should say, relative to the prodigal, has never given up on the hope that the prodigal will return. It's almost as if he is looking at the horizon. Day after day, wondering, would today be the day? And then when he sees the son in the distance, what does the father do? He runs to him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He calls for the best robe, the best ring, the sandals. And then he throws this huge village or town-wide celebration. And he expresses a love, and this is the key, that has nothing to do with the behavior or the merits of the prodigal. It's not an I love you if. As I said two weeks ago, if most of us um, were in this situation, we would stand on the porch. We wouldn't run out. We would have our arms folded like this, and we would be thinking to ourselves, this better be good. But the Father's love is initiating. He doesn't wait even for the Son to repent. It's repentance that causes It's not repentance, I should say, that causes the Father's love. It's the reverse. So, how do you handle disappointment? A spouse, somebody else, hey, thanks. Thank you very much. A co-worker, a friend, lets you down, hurts you, wounds you, injures you. How do you respond to that? What do you do? I will tell you that in the midst of the crazy challenges 
of being a blended family with seven kids, Rhonda and I would have never survived. Our marriage would not have never survived these nine and a half years if our love towards each other was a love if. It has to be a regardless, one-way, initiating love. Let's go to the elder brother. I mean, his anger, his resentment, his hate for the younger brother is palpable. But what does the father do with the older brother? Now, well, he does essentially the same thing, only differently. He goes out to him. Hey, come on in. This is where the, the, the party is, the celebration. We want you to be a part of it. Do you, do you see what's going on here? With the elder brother, Jesus is illustrating this divine one-way love that even the most religious and the most moral people need this one-way love because they're just as lost as the most irreligious and immoral, the prodigal. Uh, so I want you to think about what's going on here with the elder brother. Because Jesus knows his audience. He knows that this elder brother that he's painting a picture of is the representation of the Pharisees of the teacher of the law who in just a matter of no time are going to hand this same Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Now these last couple verses in this parable mean that Jesus is offering the love of the Father to the very people that will have him crucified. It's one-way love. Look at these words from Pastor Tim Keller. Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He is not self-righteous about self-righteousness, nor should we be. He not only loves wild, living, free-spirited people, but also hardened religious people. We will never find God unless he first seeks us. But we should remember that he can do so in very different ways. Sometimes God jumps on us dramatically, as he does with the younger son. And we have a sharp sense of his love. Sometimes he quietly and patiently argues with us, even though we continue to turn away, as in the case of the older brother. How can you tell if he is working on you now? If you begin to sense your lostness and find yourself wanting to escape it, you should realize that desire, that desire is not something you could have generated on your own. Such a process requires help, divine help. And if it's happening, it's a good indication that he, even now, is at your side. The point of the parable is that God's love is massive, that God loves everyone, the irreligious and the religious. And therefore, there is always hope, there is always second chances. So that's the first aspect. Let's go on to the second. The second aspect of God's love that comes to the surface here is that it's steadfast, it's steadfast love. By that I mean it's patient, it's enduring. Now let me talk about pain. Both these sons 
in different ways at different times were in pain. And you and I tend to think that God is silent in our suffering. We tend to think that God ignores us in our pain because that's why we're in pain. And if God was attentive, that wouldn't be the case. And so we have typically one of two responses. We tend to move away from God and, get, uh, and deny God and head to the far country, the prodigal, or we just stew in anger, the injustice of it all, the unfairness, and we develop anxiety and fear and bitterness, the older brother. Both are different responses of unbelief. And both are poison to the soul. Uh, in the last week or two, Rhonda and I watched a movie by the name of Silence. The movie is based on true events. It's a movie about Catholic Jesuit priests from Portugal who experienced severe, violent persecution in Japan, as the Japanese in the 1600s, early 1600s, attempt to eradicate Christianity from their country. So when a, a priest or a Christian is caught and brought before the Japanese authorities, the Japanese authorities tell these Christians, these priests, well, you can go free and you can leave here if you will do one thing, step on the image of Jesus and denounce your faith in him. As a matter of fact, we have recovered from some of these images from the 1600s. Let's look at two of them. These were plates, and they were placed in front of the Christian and again, the Christian was told, step on this and you go free. And tragically, and, and I don't recommend this movie because it's really violent, some of the priests and some of the Christians, because the suffering was so horrific, stepped on the plate, stepped on Jesus and denounced him. If you're in pain or a period of uncertainty or confusion and you begin to move away from God to the distant country or if you start to get really angry and frustrated even furious with God like the elder brother I want to say to you in all love you are stepping on Jesus and you're functionally denying him. After we watched this movie, Rhonda and I were talking about it and, and I said out loud, I said to her, I wonder how I step on Jesus. in this situation or in that situation or in what I allow to go on in my heart. 
I wonder how I functionally denounce him. And we can do that in the marketplace, we can do that on weekends, we can do that with friends, and we certainly tend to do it in pain. But the whole point of this parable is that God never goes into hiding. He never gives up. His love is unwavering and is steadfast. And he seeks, always seeks your highest good. God intended the days of your life to be easy. They would be. But no, he intends the days of your life to be tools of refinement in his hands. Don't judge the goodness of God by what you're going through, how difficult it is. Instead, understand it's part of God's good plan for your life to take you through different seasons, good times and bad. I mean, isn't this the experience of one person after another in the Bible, Job? Joseph, Ruth, Naomi, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea. And then we come to the New Testament. And it's Jesus, it's Peter, it's Paul. Church history tells us it's all of the the 12 disciples. Here in our parable, both sons separate from the father's heart. One does it externally, the other does it internally. But unlike human love, divine love here is steadfast. Now my point isn't choose suffering. My point is don't miss the presence of God in the midst of it. The makers of the movie entitled the movie Silence because that's how some of the priests and the Christians felt about God, that he has gone silent. And so I want to plead with you because I love you not to make that mistake. God's love, God is looking God is caring. God is caressing. His love is steadfast. Now let me go on. Third, a third aspect of God's love uh, is this. uh, God's love isn't abstract. It's not merely theoretical. It's tangible. It's experiential. And how do we know that? Well, that's the point of the feast in the parable. It was something to experience. It's in verses 23 and 24 and verse 32. Now, yes, on the one hand, this peace, or this feast rather, points to the final marriage supper of the Lamb that those of us that know Jesus Christ will experience in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem at the culmination and restoration of all things. And yes, this feast is a picture of that. But this feast is also a picture of the experience of salvation for the believer in this life. I mean, think about it. The dancing, the music, 
The food, the smells, the festivity, the the people, the presence of the Father himself all point to real-time experiential. Life in Jesus Christ. Now let me line out a couple pieces of this. Let's take the subject of joy. Because joy is so central here in in this feast. Now, what is the joy? Well, the joy points to the joy of salvation, the joy of repentance. That's true in the previous two parables. It's true in this parable. The joy of heaven, the joy of the angels, the joy of the Father uh, in heaven who rejoices over the salvation of a sinner. It refers to the joy of evangelism the fruits of evangelism, conversion. It demonstrates parenthetically why evangelism is primary. But there's also another piece to this joy, and that is this joy in the festival, in the celebration, in in the party, points to the joy of the believer who lives in light of the wonder of God's love and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The joy that God wants you and I to know because of all he has given us in our union with Christ. So as Paul says in Romans 15, 13, and I've mentioned this before, and I want this to be true in your life. May the God of hope fill you, fill you, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. When I first came to Christ in the city of Dallas, the Holy Spirit really lit up my life, and I completely and totally changed. But for about six months, I really struggled with the assurance of my salvation. And I, and I went deep, and I got way too over-analytical and hypercritical and I, I would struggle with, well, am I in or am I out? And what about this in my life? And what, and what about that? And so I went to see the pastor of my church, a guy by the name of Bill McRae. And, and, and Dr. McRae opened my eyes to see a couple passages in the New Testament that were game changers for me. And then he said something I will never forget as I... As I was leaving, he said, young man, relax and enjoy your salvation. Do you? Are you enjoying the wonder of the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life? Is that joy a dominant motif in your heart? There's another aspect or another piece here that gets at this experiential nature of God's love. And this is suggested again by all the things that are tangible here, all the things that are physical, all these elements, and especially with the fact that the Father is present in the midst of this feast. What am I talking about? Well, it suggests that for the Christian. The love of God can be and should be the most real thing in our lives. What we celebrate, 
Now think about this. God wants his love, his presence to be so functional in your life that it's more real than anything else. More real to you than anything else. Another way to look at this feast is it is the fulfillment of the psalmist's invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a partial fulfillment. Ultimately, the fulfillment will be in the restoration in heaven. But here, in the here and now, in our our salvation, because all that we know of what Jesus has has done for us, we can taste and we can see. Do you? Do you experience this joy? Does it fill your life? Do you experience the reality, I mean the realness, the intimacy, the the presence of God? Is it something that's tangible to you? Karl Marx was wrong. Christianity isn't the opiate of the people. Christianity is the fulfillment of the deepest longings of the human heart. So here at the end of the parable, what does the father say to the elder brother? He says, we had, we had to celebrate. We had, we had to be glad. So God's love is initiating. God's love is steadfast. God's love is experiential. It's something we can experience. And the last thing I want you to see, the fourth aspect is God's love is costly. Costly. Let me ask you a question. And think about this. Is God's love unconditional? We tend to quickly respond, yes. But I want to suggest, according to the Bible, it's both yes and no. It's yes in the sense that God's love toward us has nothing to do with anything in us. But no in the sense that God's love towards us is conditioned upon the death of Jesus Christ. So in other words, God's love is free, but it's costly. And I want to suggest the parable points to both. You say, hey, wait a minute, Rob, hold, time out. Where do we see the cost here? Well, commentators point out that the moment the father welcomed the prodigal son back as a son, there was a cost to be paid. As I mentioned two weeks ago, the son squandered every penny of about approximately 30% of the father's estate. It was gone. So what does that mean? Well, that means now... Everything that's left, all the land, all the animals, all the, all the possessions belong to the elder brother. So look at verse 31. This is why the father says in verse 31, everything I have is yours. He's speaking to the elder brother. Now what in the world is Jesus teaching? Well, Jesus is teaching, yes, God's love is free, his grace is free, but for the prodigal to be brought back into the family and reinstated as a son again, the elder brother has to pay for it. 
And what do I mean? Well, part, even if it's a small part, part of the elder brother's estate will be moved to the younger brother because he's been reinstated in the family. Now, where this gets a little harder for us to see is that the elder brother is defiant. He's hateful. He's spiteful. But what commentators tell us, what Jesus is doing here, and it's just masterful, is saying to us to experience God's love, you need an elder brother to pay for it. And Jesus is the elder brother who went to the cross to die in our place to pay the debt of sin we owe God. But Jesus didn't give up his possessions. Jesus gave up his life. On the cross, Jesus experienced disgrace so that he might give us grace. On the cross, Jesus was treated the way we deserve so that when we believe, so as John says, when we receive Jesus, we will be treated the way Jesus deserves. And all that is under the surface here. Now let me take this a step further and I'll be done. Until you and I understand... That the gospel, the suffering Jesus Christ endured for us, until we understand uh, our, our union in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and until the gospel, the suffering of Christ, our union in Christ dominates our lives, God will only be partially real. Why? Because we'll believe at one level, but not believe at another level. At the functional level. So what happens is over time, approval, acceptance, performance in the marketplace, success, our, our, our family, or, or, um, work, our, our boyfriend or a girlfriend, become those uh, items that we placed our functional trust and security in instead of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what happens is that then we become driven by a lack of spirituality. And things like Anxiety, anger, and this emotion and this emotion are just under the hood. Because we believe in the gospel at one level, but at the functional level, when push comes to shove, and we're so very busy, our security and our confidence placed in things or people, not Jesus Christ. 
And this is why we say at Wheaton Bible Church, this is value number one, that the gospel isn't just a starting line, it's a whole race. Parents, the most important thing you can teach your children is that the gospel isn't just a starting line, it's a whole race. It's not their performance, it's Jesus' performance. It's resting in the wonder of what Jesus has done. There is nothing more important for you in your marriage, nothing more important for you and me in our lives than to live gospel-centered lives. You see, it's the gospel. I mean, when the gospel dominates the functional realities, cavities of our heart, that you and I don't have to worry about worry. We don't have to worry about worry. We don't worry is what I'm trying to say. This takes a while to get there. And we can slay the, the, the demon of anxiety. How, how is that? Because to the extent we see functionally the death, the perfect life, the perfect death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will see that proves God's love for me. And I'm secure. Uh, the dominance of the gospel in your heart is what enables you to stand against lust. How so? Well, when you understand that Jesus Christ was perfectly faithful to you and that he is in your husband and he is your husband, that, melt, that reality melts your heart. All change, all growth, all transformation comes from this intersection of knowing that God's love is free and costly. And your problems and my problems arise because we don't continually go back to the gospel. We try to do it on our own. Your union in Jesus' death and resurrection, the reality, the wonder of all of that, isn't just the ABC, but it's the A to Z of life. And that's the parable. Let's pray. So, Father, for your grace, for this love, the breadth and the beauty of it, we praise you. We honor you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.